1: This is book
2: TV's afterwards podcast this week, former CIA director, John Brennan talks politics and national security. He's interviewed by Julian Barnes, New York times national security reporter.
1: Director Brennan. Thanks for uh, sitting down with me, uh, today. Uh, Your book uh, provides really interesting background and detail, not just about your career and on intelligence debates of the, the past, but it's very much relevant to the news of our current days. It's four years later, we're still fighting about Russian interference in 2016, Republicans and Democrats are still debating about whether the investigations were handled properly four years ago, whether you and intelligence leaders of 2016 drew the right conclusions about Russia, uh, Russian action. Your book opens with the scene after the election, before the inauguration. You're briefing first congressional leaders and then go to New York to brief the Trump, Trump and his team. Uh, there's a sharp partisan divide when you brief Congress. Describe that and talk about whether that was inevitable, given the politics of our moment, or could something have been done differently? Well, Julian, um, I was asked to brief the Gang of Eight
2: um, when we learned about what the Russians were doing and the full extent of it. And uh, the Gang of Eight is usually the group of uh, members of Congress, both the House as well as the Senate, who are entrusted with the most sensitive secrets and intelligence that the US intelligence community has. And so when I went down there and briefed uh, the eight of them, uh, I think there was you know, very strong concern uh, as well as a very serious reaction on the part of six of those individuals for the Democrats. That was Senator Feinstein, uh, as well as um, Adam Schiff. uh, And uh, there were a number of uh, the Democrats who were very concerned about what they were hearing about what the Russians were doing. Uh, Among the Republicans, Paul Ryan, then the Speaker of the House, as well as Richard Burr, who was the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee also treated the information very, very seriously. And I think they were very encouraging also of the CIA and the Intelligence Community continuing to look into this matter and to find out what exactly the Russians were doing. Unfortunately, uh, Senator McConnell and Devin Nunes, uh, Senator McConnell, who's the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, as well as Devin Nunes, who was the then chairman of the House Intelligence Committee uh, reacted negatively and uh, I relate in the book that uh, Senator McConnell in fact uh, implied that the CIA was working with the Obama administration to try to undermine the electoral prospects of uh, Donald Trump, and uh, I shot back pretty quickly at him in saying that I take great umbrage uh, at his uh, inference uh, that the CIA would never do anything of the sort to get involved in partisan politics. Devin Nunes, who uh, was uh, soon to become part of the Trump transition team uh, and uh, helping Donald Trump after he was elected uh, to take office. Uh, He was already showing, I think, his very hyper-partisan instincts and uh, was not really curious at all about it. Uh, Thanked me for the information, but uh, then uh, proceeded to, uh, I think, uh, be very concerned about what the intelligence community was learning and finding out about Russian efforts to interfere in the election.
1: You're critical of the president or the president-elect in the briefing that followed. You you say Mr. Trump's demeanor and questions revealed that he was kind of uninterested in what the Russians had done during the election. You argue you write that you think he was seeking to know how you knew what you knew, uh, and you were troubled by that. I, I want to talk a little bit about that because aren't presidents? What are presidents supposed to know about the the sources of of the CIA's information and how it gets its intelligence. And what made you think that Mr. Trump's motivations were not pure, that they were troubling? Well, I've personally briefed four out of the six presidents that I served during my
2: career. And all those presidents were extremely interested in learning what the intelligence community, what the CIA had collected in terms of its intelligence and its analysis of these issues. whenever I would brief them, uh, I never heard any one of them ask me, you know, anything specific about, you know, who the source was or uh, specific details about the collection capability or the human asset that we're using. I would always try to give them a sense of the access of the individual, the reliability of the information, the track record of that collection system or that that, uh, source, human source. Um, But they would always continue to ask me uh, questions in order to, fill out their understanding of the issue and the intelligence. With Donald Trump, when I was at Trump Tower, uh, briefing him in early January of 2017, uh, he would continue to almost deflect when we would talk about the Russian efforts to interfere in the election. He would continually bring up China, you know, couldn't have been China. Um, And so he demonstrated no intellectual curiosity about how the Russians were attempting to interfere, what they were doing, what we knew, uh, what were some of the gaps in our knowledge. Uh, He was more uh, seeking to understand uh, how we knew this. Um, And as I said in my book, I was concerned about what he might do with that information if he truly was concerned that the intelligence community had information uh, on Russian interference and its contacts with the Trump campaign that might be damaging to him personally. And so I was very um, wary about what he might do with the information.
1: Of course, it's four years later now. Politicians are still trying to find out more about your sources. Uh, In particular, there's a focus on that January 2017 intelligence community assessment. Uh, Its sources and its conclusions that Russia tried to influence the 2016 vote and that Putin favored Trump. Uh, The Justice Department has appointed a prosecutor, John Durham, to examine the Russian investigation and kind of has looked at some of that process. Um, In the book, you describe part of reaching that conclusion, the the now controversial assessment that Putin favored Trump. And in what might be the most newsy part of your book, you, you talk that two senior agency officials raised questions about that conclusion. They, they may have wanted a lower confidence. Could you describe a little bit about that process of, of, of reaching the, that, that key conclusion? Well, the
2: CIA uh, put its best analysts on Russia and cyber counterintelligence uh, on this project to craft this intelligence community assessment. CIA has the best analysts you know, throughout the intelligence community and who are deeply knowledgeable about you know, Russian efforts to try to undermine our democracy. And so I left it to the appropriate components within CIA to select the individuals to draft this assessment. And they came up with the assessment where the findings were the Russians were trying to interfere in the election to undermine you know, our democracy. They were trying to denigrate Hillary Clinton. Uh, this was done at the direction of Vladimir Putin, and they were trying to enhance the electoral prospects of Donald Trump. Now. All of those findings initially had high confidence attached to it by the agencies that were involved in this assessment. The FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Now, NSA um, subsequently decided to downgrade its level of confidence in one of those judgments from high to medium. And that judgment was on Russian efforts to try to promote Donald Trump as the favored candidate to win the election. Um, CIA analysts uh, were at the high confidence level. Now when that assessment was looked at internally in CIA, there were two senior officers in that mission center who were more aligned with the moderate confidence level. And there's really not much difference between high confidence judgment and a moderate confidence judgment. But they did express their concerns about that high confidence dis- decision. So They came up and talked to me about it. And I listened to them because I wanted to make sure that I understood exactly what their concerns were. And I encouraged them to talk with the authors of the assessment and to determine whether or not that judgment should stay at high confidence or medium confidence. They said that they already had talked to the authors, but I encouraged them to do it again and to explain their uh, concerns. Um, I was not going to overrule and overturn the consensus judgment of the CIA analysts who were steeped in this issue because two individual CIA officers, uh, you know, had a difference of, of opinion. That would have been my interfering in a very arbitrary and unilateral way in that analytic process. So how it ultimately came out was that that judgment of the CIA stayed at that high confidence level. The CIA was joined by the FBI and the Office of Director of National Intelligence. NSA had moderate confidence, but I believe that we preserve the integrity of that analytic process by, again, allowing the system to, in fact, um, recognize that the individuals to make this determination about the judgment were the authors and the analysts who were responsible for this intelligence community assessment.
1: But in effect, were you disregarding more experienced Russia experts and siding with more junior Russia experts? Is that, is that what was going on here? I mean, what's the dynamic within the, the Russia Mission Center uh, about this?
2: Well, I have you know, great respect for the two officers who raised their hands and said, you know, they think it should be at a lower level of confidence But yet in my conversation with them, it was apparent to me, and I say in the book, that they had not really read all of the intelligence, certainly that I had read, because I was reviewing this information for quite some time. And so my own view was to support the analysts who had come up with their confidence level. I wasn't disregarding it at all. That's why I spent about 30 minutes in my office with the two of them, and we talked it through it. Uh, and I again encourage them to go down and to talk with the authors and the analysts uh, who were pulling together those judgments in the assessment. So in no way did I disregard it. In fact, I encouraged them to continue to work with the authors. Uh, but ultimately, again, it, it comes down to those who are responsible for drafting that analysis. I didn't change a single analytic judgment in that intelligence community assessment. Uh, I I looked at the report when it came up in draft, Uh, I raised some questions, uh, you know, whether or not we need to, you know, strengthen a judgment or or, or provide additional information uh, in either the top secret classified version or then the unclassified version. Uh, But again, I was deferring as directors of Central Intelligence agencies should do to those who have that responsibility for making those determinations.
1: The CIA specializes in human intelligence um, and is the best at that. The NSA specializes in signals, electronic intercepts. Um, Does that explain why there's different levels of confidence here between the two agencies or is it more complex than that?
2: Well, you know, um, (laughs) analytic Treycraft and making decisions about the level of confidence on a particular judgment or finding is a a combination of science and art. And so you can have experienced analysts on on an issue, look at a a data and intelligence reports, and they may come away based on their perspective, their experience, their um, approach to that, that subject matter, may come out with different um, determinations as far as a judgment's uh, confidence level. And so, as I said, NSA analysts initially were at the high confidence level. Mike Rogers, the director of NSA at the time, had concerns about that. And he then talked with the analysts and then Mike Rogers uh, made the decision on behalf of NSA uh, that the judgment should be uh, at the moderate level. Now, I don't know if that was a consensus view within NSA's analytic uh, group that was working on this issue or not. Um, But I know that uh, frequently you will have differences of view, rightly so, and it should be aired in the process of drafting and crafting then the assessment. But again, there ultimately has to come out with a position. uh, And that's what
1: happened in in this case. And again, we're not talking about uh, a disagreement about Putin's position and whether he favored. It's just the sort of level of certainty behind that. Is, is that. that? I mean, I think that's kind of important to understand because Republicans have, you know, led by John Ratcliffe, had said it's wrong and that Putin didn't favor Trump.
2: No, you're absolutely right. There was unanimity within the four agencies that crafted this intelligence assessment, that these were the appropriate judgments and that the finding that uh, the Russians were trying to promote the electoral prospects of Donald Trump was a view that was held by all. And so the distinction was only between whether or not they had high confidence in that judgment or moderate confidence. But moderate confidence still is a weighty judgment by the intelligence community If you recall, uh, the recent uh, um, discussions about the brutal slaying of uh, Jamal Khashoggi uh, by the Saudis um, resulted in a reported CIA assessment where they had assessed with moderate confidence that the Crown Prince Mohammed Salman was responsible for that horrific and brutal killing. And so that is a very, very significant judgment Uh, So, even though NSA brought it down to moderate confidence, all of the agencies involved uh, were firm believers that this, in fact, was the aim of the Russians to promote Donald Trump uh, in the election. Even those two senior officers who came to me didn't dispute that finding at all. They were just saying that they felt that the weight of evidence was not as great uh, for that one finding as the others. That might have been true. But then you look at the strength of the reporting that went into that finding. And again, the analysts and the authors responsible for the assessment decided and determined that it met their standards for high confidence.
1: So Bill Barr has appointed a US attorney, John Durham, to to look into the origins of the Russia investigation. by news reports in the New York Times and elsewhere. He's, he's looking into this analytic process. He brought you in to, for a lengthy interview on this. Um, how much did Mr. Durham focus on this part? Was he asking you a lot of questions uh, about this, this very moment? How, how much was he re-litigating, re-reviewing the, the formation of the assessment in 2016?
2: Well, as you can imagine, uh, during an eight-hour interview, uh, we touched upon a lot of issues, and certainly the INTELS community assessment was one of them, which is rather puzzling to me uh, why a special prosecutor is asking questions about how judgments uh, within the INTELS community um, came about um, on this um, assessment. Uh, but yes, he asked me about that. I explained exactly, similar to what I explained to you about uh, how I approached the issue, how I deferred to those responsible for drafting the assessment. Uh, but we touched upon a lot of issues during those eight hours. And I felt that the interview was conducted very professionally. Uh, John Durham and his then deputy, Norah Dennyi, um, were the principal questioners and I thought it was conducted in a very fair manner. Uh, I was a bit uh, concerned and disconcerted when I heard that, that Nora had uh, moved away from the investigation, in fact, resigned from DOJ because of reports of politicization that is going on. I'm just hoping that John Durham is going to stay true to what has been his very strong reputation for being a professional uh, member and and officer official of the Department of Justice. But uh, we'll have to see because, as you note, um, William Barr, uh, I think, has used his office of the Attorney General to continue to uh, allow Donald Trump to uh, deflect uh, the various um, charges
1: uh, and concerns uh, that are directed at him. So the media has reported that uh, a key Russian informant was extracted and relocated. Uh, you know, after uh, in the early days of uh, Trump's term. Um, and uh, the media, including myself, have reported that uh, this source was uh, a critical part of the the conclusion on Putin's support for Trump. Now, I know you cannot talk about sources, but would your conclusion have been based on one source? Would you would the CIA ever come to a high confidence conclusion based on one person? Well, I
2: I agree with you, Julian, that I'm not going to talk about sources Um, and I'm not going to say anything that could in any way compromise the safety, security of uh, sources, whether they be human sources or or technical collection systems. Uh, But uh, CIA has uh, a long history, nearly 75 years history of working with sources, um, human and technical and the analysts and CIA uh, are exceptionally well-trained, and the standards of analytic tradecraft are very high. And so uh, they take a lot into account in terms of uh, multiple sources. What is the credibility and the uh, track record of these sources? You can have a lot of sources, but maybe those sources were not as reliable or didn't have the access you wanted. You also could have you know, single two or two or three sources whose access to information has, is not only um, great, but also has been verified. So again, there's a lot that goes into the intelligence process to validate a source's access, to validate their reporting. And when information comes in from these sources, it's looked at in the context of reliability, access, truthfulness, accuracy.
1: So, Mr. Radcliffe, the new DNI, uh, who is a fierce defender of President Trump, has been declassifying a lot of intelligence around the Russia investigation, uh, including some snippets of notes of a briefing you gave Obama about Russian collection on Hillary Clinton and her plans to criticize Trump over his uh, attitude toward Russia. Um, Some current and former officials have suspected This information is disinformation, Russian disinformation. Um, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that, why it was presented to Obama in the summer of 2016 and and what you think about these DNI declassifications. Are they helpful?
2: Well, first of all, I I think um, Mr. Ratcliffe um, has abused the Office of the Director of National Intelligence by blatantly politicizing his ability to declassify very selectively some information that he believes and the Republicans and the Trump White House believes are going to allow them to um, make an argument as, against Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it's clear that, uh, again, this was the intention of the release. It's very selective in terms of what was pulled out of various reports and so I am limited in terms of what I can say to only what has been declassified in this note. But let me just say that when I was director of CIA, I fulfilled my responsibilities to brief the president and senior officials about what the Russians were up to during this presidential election campaign season. And I was blind to the issue of political party or which candidate to referred to. I wanted to make sure I presented information as accurately um, and as thoroughly as possible. And so um, the report that was included in Mr. Ratcliffe's uh, very selective um, memo um, was that the Russians were reporting this. Um, And it also says that it's unclear whether it was a fabrication or what, uh, or something else. Um, So the the accuracy of that information, I think is very much in, in doubt. And is questionable. But even if that information was accurate about that Hillary Clinton had approved this plan uh, to go after Trump for the reported connections between Trump and the Russians, there is nothing at all that I see in that snippet that uh, would violate U.S. law. And so I think people have to be very cautious about associating that phrase, and then what it says in the Radcliffe memo about the referral that was made to the FBI in terms of what's considered to be a what's called a counterintelligence operational lead, but there is nothing at all in those within those quotation marks so referring to Hillary that constitutes a violation of U.S. law, and so the FBI would not be investigating whether or not you know Hillary Clinton is trying to amplify uh, or you know bring greater attention to uh, the reported connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. So again, it's just a very, very curious, but also a very disturbing release of selected information by John Ratcliffe, who seems to be doing what William Barr and others have done, which is to try to give Trump uh, anything, any shiny object that they can point to, to distract from the problems that uh, Trump is encountering increasingly
1: on a daily basis. Let's step back for a moment, and I'm curious at your thoughts at how we got here, where the allegations, the conclusion that a foreign power is interfering in our democracy has become a a partisan issue. And, you know, do you think the sort of Republican skepticism over Russian intentions are today, interfering in our ability to combat, stop foreign influence operations?
2: <laughs> I absolutely, absolutely believe that what the Republicans are doing now in terms of defending Trump um, is, is helping the Russians continue their efforts to divide us as a country to fuel this tremendous um, partisan battle that is going on in Washington right now. Uh, you know, throughout my 33 plus year government service, and I talk about this in the book, um, I had a lot of battles um, with uh, members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. And during the Obama administration, most of my battles were with the Democrats um, who had called for my, you know, firing a resignation numerous times. So I've seen the Democrats, you know, pursue partisan uh, agendas um, and frequently then, you know, not representing the, the truth the way I think they need to. But the worst of the Democratic transgressions I think pales in comparison to what we're seeing today in terms of Mr. Trump's continued lies and the Republicans continued support and defense of him. And so uh, therefore, I, you know, I, I will call out you know, members of either party uh, when I think that they are abusing their office and they are putting party loyalty or loyalty to an individual ahead of their obligations and responsibilities to the American people and to the Constitution. And over the past three and a half plus years, I have been just appalled at what I have seen Republicans do and say, again, misrepresenting the facts frequently, and I'm seeing it, including today, I was watching earlier uh, this uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearing with Jim Comey and Lindsey Graham misrepresenting the facts in the questions to Jim Comey. They do it, and sometimes it's out of ignorance, but sometimes they do it willfully and purposely mislead the American public. And I find that something that is a dereliction of their duties and responsibilities to the American people.
1: I mean, you have in the past done battle with with Democrats. But in this era, you've become, you know, one of the sharpest critics of of President Trump. I mean, and you've gone quite far in in criticism, particularly after the Helsinki uh, news conference with Vladimir Putin. Some people have said you've gone too far, especially for someone who has held a traditionally nonpartisan post like CIA director. have you ever felt like you've gone too far? Um, and uh, Or do you just feel it's your obligation given the fact that intelligence is, you know, at the center of this political debate? Well, since January 20th,
2: 2017, I have been a private citizen. Before that, um, for most of that time, um, I was a US government official. And um, I worked hard to defend the rights and liberties of the American citizenry to express their views openly and freely. And so maybe now I am taking advantage of that uh, <laughs> opportunity. Uh, but you know, it's, it's not just a question of policy differences. Although I have policy differences with Donald Trump and the Trump administration in terms of what they've done as far as the Iran nuclear agreement and Paris Climate Accords and other types of things, that is fine. And I wouldn't be speaking out so vociferously if it was just policy differences. It is his dishonesty. It is his political corruption. It is, is his abuse of the office of the presidency that just gets to me, and that I feel a responsibility and obligation to call him out for it. And so, yes, uh, I was hoping that when I retired for the second time in January of 2017, I was going to be able to ride off into the retirement sunset uh, and not stir up any you know, controversy or, or issues. Uh, But I cannot remain silent when Donald Trump denigrates the intelligence community, denigrates the men and women of the FBI and these professions, and just continues to deceive the American public about reality. And quite frankly, I find it rather disappointing and surprising that not more people from past administrations have spoken up and spoken out. I think it's important to call Donald Trump out for the um, dishonesty uh, and for the fraudulent uh, behavior uh, that he has engaged in.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So it's hard to imagine Mike Pompeo, your immediate successor, sort of relying on you for advice. But uh, it's easier to imagine uh, Gina Haspel, the current director, uh, whom you have known over the years, whom you've worked with, uh, you know having a sort of uh, a relationship with you, but it seems you write in the book, you indicate that that to a certain extent uh director Haswell well the Director Haswell has had to keep you at uh, at a distance because of your role as a you know uh, uh, fighter of uh, with the, with the president in the political sphere um, you know was that what is the cost of of your political activism of calling it out does that has that stopped you from offering it it seems to have stopped you from offering sort of private advice and and was that a trade-off worth making well uh, i know that the white house announced that they were revoking my security clearances
2: uh, back in 2018. um i still have my security clearances because there was no basis whatsoever to revoke them and all previous directors have maintained their security clearances and it's for the benefit of the government so that as you point out, if uh, Gina Haspel or other senior CI officers wanted to talk to me about my experiences when I was director, you know how I interacted with certain foreign officials or my perspectives on certain issues dealing with the Russians or Chinese or whatever, I could easily talk to them and they can talk freely to me to include classified information, but um, Donald Trump, as I mentioned in the book, issued a directive to the CIA and the intelligence community prohibiting them from discussing or sharing any classified information with me. So although I retain my security clearances, uh, they are prohibited from discussing anything classified with me. Uh, And so therefore, uh, it has, I think, certainly uh, inhibited uh, the agency. Um, They have not reached out to me. I have tried not to put any of my former colleagues in harm's way by uh, reaching out to them. Uh, I am at their disposal if they wanted to talk with me. Um, since Gina Haspel was confirmed as CI director, I had one a meeting with her, and she invited me to CI headquarters to thank me for my support for her nomination. Uh, and that was the last time I ever heard from Gina, uh, unfortunately.
1: So in this book, which um... To prepare this book, the CIA did not let you have access to your your files as director or, you know, presumably other other work product from earlier in your career. How much of a challenge was that to sort of uh, put that together? And there are some times in this narrative where the reader would, would want more detail. And how much of that is withheld just because it's classified and you can't share it? Or how much of it is it withheld because they wouldn't let you access your notes? Well, I think
2: it's a combination of the two. Uh, First of all, I have a lifelong obligation to honor my security requirements as far as protecting classified information and sources and methods. So even if I had access to my classified files, I still would have had to submit the manuscript to CIA to review it for classified information. And I did that with this manuscript. And there were some areas where the CIA asked me to change some things. You know, I agreed with you know, many of them. I disagreed with some. We went back and forth. Uh, they relented on some. I relented on some. But uh, I had to make sure that it was going to have that classification review. Unfortunately, they did not allow me to have access to my files and all previous uh, CIA directors and acting directors who have written memoirs or books were granted that access promptly and routinely. But again, it was because of Donald Trump's, I think, animus toward me uh, that uh, the CIA was not allowed to do that. And so you know, I wish I had access to it uh, to uh, remind myself of some of the discussions and was it, I wish I would have been able to review my classified notes Uh, The CIA did give me access to uh, an unclassified version of my calendar uh, at the, you know, for official use only level, but they had uh, redacted any of my uh, reference to even, you know, what day of the week my phone call to a foreign uh, official took place. So it it was, it did hamper me, uh, but uh, fortunately, I think I still have a pretty good memory of a lot. And... I tried to um, explain in the book, uh, to the best of my recollection, what happened during various meetings uh, and events, and I, I had the opportunity to talk to a number of my former colleagues who were no longer at CIA so that they could help me think through and remember some of these, I think, seminal events
1: in our national security that took place over the last several decades. So you mentioned your fights with Democrats during the Obama administration. And there's a good portion of the book that you um, talk in detail about uh, your struggle with the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee over their report on uh, CIA interrogation, torture allegations. Um, and you're very critical of the Senate Democrats and the media. You argue kind of both the allegations of torture and the allegations of spying that the CIA spied on the Senate were, were overwrought. Um, sometimes this book sounds like a little bit of uh, score settling, uh, more than a detached evaluation of, of how you or the agency sort of handled that relationship with congressional oversight. What was your purpose when you were diving into that and, and what, looking, talk a little bit about that time and, 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 your, and your feelings about how the Senate and the, the media handled this?
2: Well, clearly I have my own views and perspectives about you know, the events that took place when the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee that was led by the Democrats uh, embarked on this review of CIA's detention interrogation program. And uh, I don't know whether it's, I wouldn't say it's score settling, although again, uh, you know, I was one of the protagonists uh, involved in this uh, drama. Um, but I do acknowledge in the book that I think that there were a number of times when I could have handled some of these congressional relations better. Um, but uh, you know, I didn't, but looking back on it, there were things that I wish I would have done differently. But what really riled me during this time and uh, continues to is the mischaracterization of what CIA did in the aftermath of 9 11 in terms of the heroic work that was done by many CIA officers to prevent a recurrence of the 9 11 attacks? Yes, there were mistakes made, and yes, there were things that needed uh, to be addressed and to individual officers held to account. But all of the good stuff and the very positive. Uh, Things that the CIA did seemed to be ignored by the Senate Democrats who were drafting this report. But also, even more fundamentally, the, um, the implication uh, and the, uh, the claim that the CIA spied on Senate computers was absolutely a specious allegation that I wanted and I tried while I was director, um, but I still was limited in terms of what I could say at that time. I wanted in this memoir to put the facts to the table that the computers that the Senate was using were CIA computers, that the CIA had an obligation to determine whether or not there was a vulnerability in that system that allowed the Senate staffers to access a document that they were not authorized to have. And so when our security and information technology specialists were trying to understand how that document got to those computers that the Senate was using, was, there was a mistake made that a couple of internal messages that the staffers were sending to one, one another were accessed by CIA officers. That was wrong, and that's why I apologize to Diane Feinstein and to Saxby Chambliss, who were the leaders of the Senate Intelligence committee at the time, that there was something that the CIA did wrong, but did we spy on them? No. Do we have an obligation to carry out this security review? Absolutely. I wanted to do this as a joint review with the Senate uh, committee, but because of, I believe, the Senate staffers concerns that what they did wrong might be exposed in that joint review, they balked at that. And so I go into some detail in this chapter because one, I think it's a complicated issue that, you know, I think a lot of Americans still have this impression about CIA spying, but I wanted to provide the details about the nature of this issue and its various complexities. Two, explain exactly what, what CIA did and why uh, it did it. And three, how we were able to try to address the shortcomings uh, and to be upfront and honest uh, with the Senate committee, which is why, again, I apologize. The Senate uh, never did an investigation of what those Senate staffers did wrong. And I believe that they did things wrong. But um, so in this, in this memoir, um, uh, again, I like to think it's not score settling. It's more trying to ensure that I present what I believe is a, an accurate and honest depiction of what happened uh, during that period of time.
1: Uh, and not to spend too much time on it, but this idea that the sort of forensic test that the CIA did to see if this uh, report, this Panetta report that the Senate uh, staffers were not supposed to have under your agreement, you don't think that was wrong to do that sort of forensic analysis on these computers that were used by, by the Senate, only that it went too far and looked at these, these messages. But the actual investigation you did to find, the, the, that, to find that that document was on that computer system was not improper, you don't think?
2: Well, as I note in the book, the um, security and IT specialists who were responsible for the integrity of that system decided to do this referred to as a forensic search which was to look for a a unique binary code of zeros and ones nothing at all that you know reveals the contents what was on that side of this um, network firewall Uh, they did that forensics uh, search and it did reveal a unique binary code again just zeros and ones uh, which to them indicated that that Panetta review uh, report was on that side. Uh, they brought it to my attention at that point, And that's when we decided to try to understand better without any type of intrusion into the content or the substance of what the, the committee was doing. Uh, and so uh, one can argue that's, you know, that should not have, have happened. I believe that the CI officers were operating in good faith went to great length to not uh, have any access to the Senate work product or any of their communications. Uh, there was one misstep and mistake that was made, um, but everything else, based on the review that was done by an accountability board, that included Senator Evan, but former Senator Evan Bayh, who was a member of the SSCI previously, decide, determined that the CIA did not act at all in bad faith and were carrying out their security
1: obligations to the best of its ability. So, were you surprised they made a movie out of this? And uh, I, I take it you, from the book, that you weren't much of a fan of it.
2: <laughs> no,
1: um, as I say
2: in the book, uh, it was it was known at the time that the lead investigator uh, of this uh, by the Senate staff um, had had noted that he was interested in making a movie on it. So uh, unfortunately, I think there were some political and, and personal agendas that were at play here. Um, and uh, there were many, many factual misrep- misrepresentations uh, in that movie um, that, um, again, just mischaracterized very badly uh, CIA's actions and activities. It, it's It uh, presents a a scene where CIA officers go into the dead of night and go into the room, what's called a SCIF, uh, that controls the classified information and systems and networks and databases that the Senate was using. Um, Goes in the middle of night and steals things. That couldn't be further from the truth. So I think this was, once again, an effort to um, try to uh, mask uh, the wrongdoing that was done by the Senate staffers and to vilify, if I can use that term, <laughs> vilify uh, the CIA.
1: One more question on this before I go away. Uh, go to other topics, and you know you don't like the the term torture, but you weren't comfortable with the enhanced interrogation techniques at the time. You you raised questions about it. Um, why isn't it torture? Why was it a mistake? Do you think that we would ever get into this situation again with the CIA going forward uh, where they would be involved in interrogations and would, w- we would have a president who would order the use of torture? Well, when I was director, I testified under oath that I would never,
2: ever authorize the CIA to engage in such a interrogation tension program again. I do think it was a mistake. I do think that the CIA was ill-prepared to do something like this. Never had that responsibility or a program like that before. But in the aftermath of 9-11, CIA was asked to do everything it could to uh, prevent the recurrence of the 9-11 attack against the homeland. Um, and so the reason why I say that the CIA program, attention interrogation program was not torture was because that that program was authorized by the President of the United States, President Bush, who was duly authorized to direct the CIA to carry out covert action activities. And this was a covert action activity. This program also was deemed to be lawful by the highest legal advisory body in the executive branch, which is the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. It was also briefed to the committees of jurisdiction in the Senate and the House. And so everything that the CIA required for it to go forward with this program, presidential authorization, uh, determination by the Department of Justice that it was legal and congressional notification took place. So CIA carried out that program. Now, any CIA officers that operated outside of the boundaries of that approved and authorized program, again, um, violated uh, their, uh, their responsibilities and exceeded what they were authorized to do and should have been, and many were, were held to account. But if they operated again within the confines of what was authorized to now say in the aftermath of this of the review and you know 2020 hindsight that the CIA was engaged in torture, When torture by U.S. law is unlawful, I think that is applying a new legal standard to something that was different during the, again, the aftermath of 9-11. Now, I have, you know, my personal views about that program. I don't think it ever should have been instituted. I also believe that the Department of Justice memos that were written on this program that deemed it lawful were very ill-founded and were not, um, I think, a solid legal argument. I'm not a lawyer, though. So the CIA senior officials at the time had basically a dilemma. Okay, are they going to say, no, we're not going to do this, again, in the heat of this battle that we were engaged in with Al-Qaeda? Or were they going to carry out the program to the best of their ability? And unfortunately, some CIA officers fell short. Some of those programs and activities were poorly managed. And you know we're not carried out I think to the letter and the spirit
1: of the uh, covert action authorization so a big chunk about of this book is is your career uh, at the CIA um, and one of my favorite parts were uh, was when you described sort of joining the CIA and and those initial sort of polygraphs and those initial days um, uh, you do get a sense of the sort of excitement of joining a cloak and dagger organization um and uh there is a kind of funny scene of uh, you getting polygraphed uh, uh in the beginning of your cia career um and uh uh having to admit that you uh disclosing your votes for uh the presidential candidates um i want you to talk a little bit about that and maybe speak a little more broadly about what you think of polygraphs in in the cia and if they're they're effective important and uh or just the cost of doing business
2: yeah the polygraph is uh, an important tool that the cia uses uh, in order to determine whether or not somebody is being truthful and that individual can be somebody who um, is an applicant to the cia it can be somebody who the cia has contact with overseas and is recruiting or as well as to determine whether or not somebody is accurately reporting you know, foreign intelligence uh, as we want it to be reported. So when I was uh, applied to the CIA, I was uh, living in Texas at the time, going to graduate school. And I came up here to Washington DC for a, a battery of tests, psychological tests, substantive tests, as well as polygraph tests. And so when I sat down with the polygrapher, um, I had uh, walked through with him you know, some of my, you know, previous issues in terms of, you know, experimentation with uh, drugs or whatever else. Uh, But then when he asked me a question about whether or not I ever belonged to any subversive organization or organization uh, that was uh, dedicated to the overthrow of the U.S. government, I was prepared to say, absolutely not, no. But maybe it was my Catholic guilt that kicked in, because I remembered then that, the first time I had the great honor and privilege to vote in a presidential election, which was in 1976. Uh, at that time, I was already very much a, uh, about nonpartisan and was um, already upset with some of the partisanship that I, I saw uh, from both sides of the aisle. When I went into the voting booth, I didn't know who I was going to vote for. And so I decided to go down the list and I saw the name Gus Hall, who was the candidate for the, the Communist Party United States. And so I I flipped that lever. And so when the polygrapher asked me that question about whether or not I was ever, you know, was a part of or supported, you know, uh, any organization dedicated to the overthrow of the American government, you know, I immediately thought of that 1976 vote. And I, you know, explained to the polygrapher that uh, I voted for Gus Hall. It was a protest vote um, that I was not, I didn't even know much about Gus Hall at the time, other than his name. And the polygrapher very calmly asked me, was there any other um, you know, support that I had provided to the Communist Party? And I said, no, that was just a, a one-off event. And as I related in the book, I was, I was um, very anxious about how he was going to react to this and very concerned that my application was going to be tossed in the waste bin. But to his great credit, the polygrapher said, it is your absolute right to to vote for whomever you wish uh, in a US election. It will not be held against you in your application that you voted for Gus Hall. And at that moment, you know, any of the qualms I might've had about joining the CIA with all the reports about, you know, what it was involved in, the types of nefarious activities overseas alleged to have occurred, um, by hearing that polygrapher tell me that the CIA respected and honored the rights of American citizens To cast their vote as they see fit, to speak out as they see fit. Um, It just made me even more interested in being hired by the CIA. So I've taken many polygraphs uh, since then. Uh, That one, I have to say, uh, was the most memorable.
1: In your career, you have both been the briefer of the president, delivering the president's daily brief. You've also sat next to the president's while they've received that brief. Um, In the Trump administration, uh, this has been a very fraught uh, 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 delivery for the intelligence community. Talk a little bit about um, the president's daily brief and its importance and how you saw different presidents handle it and what the, an intelligence briefer should prioritize when briefing the president. Well, in
2: 1994 and 1995, I was the daily briefer of the president's daily brief to President Clinton and Vice President Gore, as well as to other senior officials in the White House and National Security Council. And it really gave me uh, insight into the importance of that intelligence support to the president on a daily basis. A president is involved in so many different things and has so many streams of information and advisors coming into him. And so I needed to make sure that during those morning briefings, I would be able to ensure that the president understood what it was that the CIA and the intelligence community was concerned about. What were those near-term issues that might, in fact, require presidential attention? But also, what were those longer-term strategic issues that had the potential to really hurt U.S. national security interests? And in subsequent years, when I had the opportunity to be briefing uh, George W. Bush, as well as President Barack Obama, uh, all three of those presidents, and even George H.W. Bush, who I briefed before Clinton, all of them had this tremendous interest and thirst for information and intelligence that the intelligence community was able to provide them. And there would be a lot of back and forth and a lot of questions. Um, President Clinton was somebody who you know, almost had a computer-like mind. He had tremendous powers of recall. Uh, he could absorb and process information very quickly. Uh, he was a voracious reader. You know, he engaged, you know, with, with me and with others but uh, he he was just always on um, input or intake. Um, George W. Bush, he read the PDB religiously, but also he really enjoyed and asked for um, the interactions with analysts or operations officers or uh, intelligence experts. Uh, He really enjoyed that back and forth and learned a lot from those exchanges. Um, Barack Obama, uh, again, somebody who was able to process information very, very quickly, readily. He also had, I found, almost a, a unique ability to see relationships, second, third, and fourth order effects in terms of how one issue or one intelligence report or one piece of analysis or one recommendation for policy might, in fact, affect you know, our interests or national security interests in other areas or other parts of the world or other issues. So I found that the CIA and the intelligence briefer really needs to understand how best to provide intelligence to the president, the first customer, so that they're able to um, gain the insights that they need in order to carry out the responsibilities. I have been very, very disheartened by the reports that I hear that you know, Trump doesn't take the briefings, is you know, dismissive of intelligence and reports and analysis that he doesn't agree with. There were a lot of times when I went down to the White House where the the message and the intelligence I was delivering was not all that well-received because it was counter to the policy druthers or preferences or the inclinations of the president and senior officers, but it's the responsibility of the intelligence briefer or the director of national intelligence or the director of CIA to ensure that they hear this information, irrespective
1: of whether it comports with what they want to hear. We only have a couple minutes left, um, and I'm unfortunately having to leave a bunch of my questions uh, on the cutting room floor. But let me ask you to conclude a little bit about how you think the agency is doing right now with this president, a president who is resistant to some intelligence. Is Gina Haspel doing a good job? Is the CIA doing the best they can in these unusual situations to... Deliver intelligence to the White House on China or Russia or whatever else challenge? Well,
2: I think this is an exceptionally challenging time for intelligence professionals, whether it's a Gina Haspel or whether it's a new CIA officer, because it's clear that we have somebody in the White House, Donald Trump, who has disregarded the importance of the intelligence mission and the work and the sacrifices of CIA officers across the board. I would like to think that my former CIA colleagues are continuing to do the great work that they have done for, you know, since the CIA began back in the 1940s to bring truth to power and to ensure that they are working every day to keep their fellow citizens safe. Then I think it's, it's incumbent upon them to do this, again, irrespective of whether or not Donald Trump pays attention to the work. But at the same time, I'm sure it's very demoralizing to them that the person that really should be paying the closest attention to the intelligence that they provide is ignoring it. And so CIA, I know, and other intelligence agencies will be very resilient so that when Donald Trump is a former president, that they will be able to respond very quickly and very effectively and efficiently to the demands that I am certain the next president of the United States will make. So uh, I am concerned, I am worried, but at the same time, I have real um, strength of, of belief and conviction in the goodness and the professionalism of the rank and file throughout the intelligence community and in the law enforcement community and in the Homeland Security community that even if their leaders are not doing what they need to do, uh, the professionals in in these organizations will continue to uh, carry out their responsibilities with uh, their uh, obligations of constitution intact.
1: Director Brennan, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for discussing your new book and um, best wishes to you. Thank you so much, Julian. I really enjoyed the discussion.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c